Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Nanyap. That's Creole for something extra. And further, we command you from congregating within or about any island building or premises in such manner as to disrupt or interfere with normal functions or work conducted by or on behalf of Harvard. On March 6, 1971, a group of women marched from Boston Common through the city and into Cambridge in celebration and demonstration of support for International Women's Day. Then they took a detour and filed into 888 Memorial Drive, where they stayed for 10 days. The occupation and the greater context of the takeover are documented in Left on Pearl, a short film by the 888 Women's History Project in Cambridge. And the film is creating quite a buzz as it travels the film festival circuit. Here to talk about Left on Pearl, Rochelle Ruthchild, executive producer of the film and one of the occupiers of 888 Memorial Drive in 1971. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you. Susie Revo, director of Left on Pearl. Hello, Susie. Great to be here. And Cheryl Stein, executive producer of Left on Pearl. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, good to meet you. I'm glad to have all of you. This is very exciting. Now, we gave just a little tidbit of the history of the film. It really was an exciting takeover. Well, exciting from the perspective of one looking at the history. And uh, certainly for you, Rochelle, who have lived through it. But it had lasting impact. So I just want to set the table that people know that, yes, you have documented a moment in time, but we're still talking about some of the issues. And more than that, what came out of it still exists today. So that's the table setting. So let's start with you, Rochelle. You were there. Let's talk about how exciting it was to take that left on Pearl and go into occupying a Harvard building. Actually, at the time, I wasn't so sure it was a good idea. But uh, once we actually got to the building, we turned left on Pearl Street. That's where the title comes from. And when we got to the building and walked inside, because another group of women had actually occupied the building, it was really magical. It was very, very exhilarating to walk under the sign that said the Hingham Knitting Company because the building had formerly been a knitting factory. So to think of the history of women in textiles in Boston and just generally in the United States, and then think that this building, we were occupying this building and demanding a women's center was just very, very thrilling, really. So, Susie, pick up the story from there, because Rochelle was there living the moment, but there were real issues behind the takeover. Yes, there were demands uh, made by the women on the march involving, you know, reproductive rights, uh, equal pay for equal work, end of violence against women, uh, many of the issues we're still dealing with today, unfortunately. But, And there was also an ongoing struggle in that particular neighborhood for affordable housing. That was an area where Harvard had been expanding and people were losing their housing. So that was one of the demands as well, is that Harvard build some affordable housing in the neighborhood. And we should say, Cheryl, that 888 building was chosen with a great amount of precision. People knew that it wasn't used much. It was off campus. You'd staked it out. Everybody in the group making a plan to make this uh, action happen was really well versed on the building and, and what it could mean in this moment. 
Right. We, we knew that there were you know, two large universities in Cambridge who owned just a giant amount of property. Some of our participants looked at sites from Harvard to MIT and selected this particular site. It was close to the river. It wasn't used very often. It was large. didn't have a lot of traffic around it. So it seemed like it's just a perfect place for us to take over and have a women's center. So, I mean, I know people are listening to this who have perhaps never been in a demonstration or, or can't imagine those times, uh, particularly in the late 60s, early 70s, and this was 71, but there were a lot of taking over of buildings, even around here. Yet, this is not a story that we know. Now, why is that, Susie? I think it's because it's women's history. Women did it, and therefore it sort of disappears from the general consciousness. It isn't documented as much as for example, the Harvard takeover that happened in a couple of years earlier and that resulted in a very violent police uh, bust. So that affected this takeover as well. I just think that women's history is undervalued uh, and underreported, and that's why we wanted to make this film, because it's a, a little piece of history that people don't know about, but that was pivotal in Cambridge history. So, Rochelle, what prompted the actual moving toward, and I should say, you've been working on it forever. This is, you know, the story of a lot of uh, independent documentary filmmakers is they have a fabulous idea and then they have to work on it and work on it, both raising the money and then finding all the good characters. Some of the people that you've interviewed, as a matter of fact, you know, have died since you filmed them. But what was the initial thing from the group of you all who knew the story and who had been there to push this to even beginning to document it? Because as Susie has said, it's history that's been lost. Well, Susan Jacoby, actually, who's another member of our 888 Women's History Project, said to me in the early, as the century turned, we better do this. We better document this before everybody forgets everything. And so we started out, there were three of us, and in good early women's movement feeling, we thought we could do everything ourselves, just as we used to fix our own cars. And we soon realized that that didn't work in this case and that we needed somebody who was more technically proficient to do it, and that's when we found Susie. But we've been extremely lucky because we interviewed over 50 people, many of whom were participants in the takeover, and so far their memories are still okay. In addition to that, we found great footage, so we were extremely lucky. There was a 17-minute film of the march and the takeover, and then Susie actually found at the Boston Public Library that people at WHDH had deposited their cans of film from the time, and Susie was able to go through that and found additional material. So, for example, Sandra Graham, who was one of the chief community leaders of, of the Riverside community, talked about taking over the 1970 Harvard graduation. So we had interviewed her. She had talked about it. And then in this video, we found actual visual footage of the takeover. So that made it just so much more dynamic and real. I have to say that's one of the, well, you have so many powerful moments in this film, let me just say. But that was really pretty exciting because that's a name that I recognize, Sandra Graham. If people don't know, now you know the woman who is behind the name of the school. She served on the city council and the state legislature. But at this point, she was an activist in a community known as Riverside, which is over by the Memorial Drive building. And that community was fighting for affordable housing from Harvard, which was purchasing up land to put in student dorms. And so what came together were a group of women feminists and then this community group 
And they realized that there were overlapping issues, and they came together in this one moment of takeover of the uh, 888 building. If you're just joining us, I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And I'm here with my guests talking about Left on Pearl. It's a film about the takeover of 888 Memorial Drive. Don't look for it. It doesn't exist anymore. And a story about women taking over that building to make a point about women's issues and to demand a women's center. This was in 1971. I'm here with Rochelle Ruthschild, Susie Revo, and Cheryl Stein. So something that I think is really important in your film, because even as I talk to my niece, I'm not that, I don't feel like I'm that much older than she, all kinds of history goes away in terms of understanding of sort of the barriers that have been broken, that women have broken. The beginning of your film is so powerful, talking about what women could and could not do. Let's just mention a couple of those. I'd love, uh, Cheryl, why don't you weigh in? Well, I'm, I myself remember reading, when I was in high school, reading the newspaper, and there were jobs for men and jobs for women. And the women's jobs were basically, you know, secretarial, clerical, administrative, and, and none of the higher-paying jobs or the more exciting jobs were ever for women. And you could only apply to those jobs that were, you know, pertinent to your sex. That's That was it. And that was understood. It was sort of not a, a non-issue. Additionally, child care came up as a very, very big issue, and that's still a prominent issue today. You know, how do women move forward without child care? And Cheryl, one of the women made the point you couldn't wear pants. And Absolutely. so I just want to make that point. That we're myself, not that far away from not being able to wear pants. That's, that is absolutely <laughs> true. I myself was at Boston University during that period of time. And in our dorm, especially on Sundays, you could not come down to the common room in anything but a dress. And, of course, people wore, you know, long T-shirts and, and, you know, interpreted it in their own way. But you still, you had to wear a dress. It was just crazy. And that was men didn't have a dress code. Women just had to comply. That was the other major thing. All right, so that was the context. You want to add, Susie? Oh, and they also had a curfew for women only. Yes, there was a lot of gender limitation. <clears throat> I wanted to give people a taste of the film. And in this cut, the women explained some of their demands to the press and the public through a statement delivered outside of 888 Memorial Drive, and this is during the takeover. We have not yet found a building with space adequate to continue the many programs which we have begun in only one week. These include daycare, karate, dance, auto mechanics, medical and legal counseling, and space for a lesbian lounge, a large meeting room, a women's crash pad, and special activities such as women's and children's parties held here this weekend. The site near Central Square, mentioned by Mr. Cox, is one room in a basement. This is woefully inadequate. <coughs> we would like to move as soon as possible, but we demand a women's center, not a closet. Right on! Right on. Right on. I love the end there, uh, a women's center and not a closet. And by the way, Mr. Cox, that's Archibald Cox. Some people may know him from history. He was then a professor at Harvard. So here's the thing. In the film, you demonstrate the real time period. So some people are very puzzled by you. Like, what are you doing? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> Even though, Cheryl, you've mentioned some of the issues that women were pushing against and the women have articulated for themselves. But a lot of people were just quite puzzled, Rochelle. Yes, of course. I mean, at the time, women were supposed to keep their place. There were all kinds of limitations. And here was this group of uh, bad girls, nasty women, who were taking over the building and stepping out of their place. And then in addition to that, you have the women in the Riverside community who join up 
and say yes, as Sandra Graham says, why didn't I think of this? <laughs> so I think there was puzzlement, but there was also a kind of fascination that we were doing it, and puzzlement on the part of Harvard, because if it had been a group of men who had taken over the building, they probably would have gone right in as they did earlier and pulled this all out. But because it was women and children in the building, Archibald Cox in particular didn't know what to do. And in fact, now they call that period of Harvard's history the time of troubles. Interesting. I note that the takeover lasted 10 days, as you document, and you document day by day, which is very interesting about what was going on outside and what was going on inside. Something that I, that I think a lot of people will be interested in, given where we have moved in terms of gay rights in this country, and remember, the biggest leap has happened really in the last five years. During that time, there were straight women and gay women in the House, and they were trying to figure out, how do we deal with each other? We want to be all women together, but these were real issues, Susie. Yeah, there was some tension between straight women and gay women, as they were called then. But a lot of the people in the forefront of this takeover were lesbians and were among the early out lesbians. So it was a a moment of change, really. The previous year, there had been a march in New York that National Organization for Women had sponsored, and it was Betty Friedan had, you know, arranged. And it was actually not okay that a group of lesbians wanted to march openly as lesbians. So here it was just a year later, and things had changed really a lot because women were, you know, at the forefront who were lesbians. And And we should note, Betty Friedan was kind of an icon of women's liberation, and yet there was an issue and a struggle there. Yeah, she didn't really want to be tainted by lesbians. She felt that that was a, a slur that was being used against the women's movement, and she didn't want to be too associated with the gay movement. And she called it the Lavender Menace. And so then actually some lesbians at that point made T-shirts branding themselves part of the Lavender Menace. But yes, I think another piece of what needs to be remembered is that homosexuality at that point was considered an illness. And it was listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the list of mental illness. So, I mean, that was another piece of the stigma at that time. You could be taken off and given shock treatments or put in a mental hospital if you were identified as a lesbian. So the fact that the lesbians were really at the vanguard so much and so prominent in the takeover was really important also. And so what you bring out in your film is that people weren't just sitting in the room inside. There were classes, there were activities, there were focused discussions about the issues of the day, Cheryl. All of those programs that were being invented at that time all rolled over into the new women's center. I mean, everyone did auto mechanics. Everyone did women's health. There were personal counseling groups. There were news groups. There were daycare groups. There were just a myriad of groups going on that emanated from that initial takeover and then blossomed as we moved into the new women's center. It's so interesting to me because it sort of had echoes of some other things. You know, I immediately, when I thought about the classes and the meals and whatever, it reminded me of the early days of the Black Panthers and the free breakfast program. There was a lot of sort of taking and, and bringing together in that space as a way of expressing what women were trying to get across to the folks outside. What I thought was also interesting is that as much as you appeared to be very actively talking outwardly to the people who were curious about you during the 10 days, 
again, people didn't seem to get it. Let's listen to this clip. These are students from the Harvard Republican Club counter-protesting the takeover at 888 Memorial Drive. And there are no women in the group. when They, they, they didn't think to bring any women with them to the group. Here, here it is. <laughs> Although we have the Harvard Republican Club favor equality of economic, political, and social opportunity for women, and for everyone for that matter, we of course do not necessarily support the demands of every group that claims these equalities as its goals and ideals. We feel that a group, no matter how righteous it considers its cause, does not in this country have the right to further its objectives by breaking the law, interfering with the rights of others, or taking that which is not rightfully its own. Now, I also learned in the film that some women were under the impression, I don't know if this is legal or not, if you made enough noise and <laughs> people came by to either charge you or say something, that it didn't really stick. <laughs> so, so hence the sort of responding to this guy making his statement outside with no women, which all of the women were screaming out of the window, where are the women? Right. <laughs> if you're coming to protest us, where are the women? <laughs> that just seems, well, now it seems crazy, Cheryl. <laughs> well, women, women didn't exist. They didn't exist as a power. They didn't exist as anyone that you had to respect in any way. So, I mean, it was, how could women take over a building? I mean, it was simply absurd. It was it was ridiculous, especially for Harvard, which was probably all male at the time. I'm not sure when they became co-ed. But, oh, well, you mean when uh, Radcliffe uh, went right, away right, and, when and they became, actually all emerged, became one Harvard. Right, yes. exactly. Uh, it was actually around yeah. the same time. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I want to say that in some ways nothing has changed. I mean, look at the health care mm. bill, which was essentially concocted or planned by 12 men and one token woman. And only the token woman was added only after there was a big uproar. But in some ways, things really haven't changed. I also noted that I've, there was just so many societal things happening in the building at the same time. Um, one of the your interviewees said of the 13 women who were, you know, major leaders, only two of the marriages survived because there was so much tension between, you know, I guess these women coming into their full being and saying, I demand something else of you as a partner. And honestly, the partner's been quite confused. Like, who did I marry? What's what's going on here? Susie, you want to respond to that? Yeah, that was actually a woman talking about her consciousness raising group, which started in Lexington and was all a lot of women who were married to people who worked at Harvard and, and at MIT. And they were very smart and they thought they had good marriages. But after they talked for a number of years, it became clear that there were a lot of issues that women had in common that they didn't know they had in common about, you know, how they were treated in their families and, you know, in school and in their marriages and all of those things. So a lot of those marriages did fall apart. If you're just tuning again in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I am here with a number of the people who worked on the film Left on Pearl, which describes the takeover of the 888 Memorial Drive building that was at that time owned by Harvard in 1971. So I'm here with Rochelle Ruthchild, Susie Revo, and Cheryl Stein. We should say, and I mentioned at the beginning, the building does not exist anymore because when you all decided better to exit, you got some intel that they were going to come and sort of rush the building. Let's exit going out on a high, which the women did at the time, and you documented that in the film. Immediately, Harvard tore it down. And fumigated it before they tore it down. Mm -hmm. That's kind of <laughs> weird to me because women are doing all the cleaning, but I'm just saying. <laughs> so it was probably the cleanest building at Harvard. <laughs> I'm just going to guess <laughs> uh, during the time. But that's one of the reasons why the history is not known. Now, 
I also mentioned at the beginning that this piece of history continues in that the demand for a women's center actually was realized, and there is one on 46 Pleasant Street. It came into being shortly after the takeover and still exists, and by the way, just won a huge grant as one of the best charities from the Cummings Foundation, $100,000 being named one of the best charities in the Northeast. So it not only continues, but continues strong and is doing some of the work that was started inside the building. Rochelle. Well, it's just very exciting, Mm -hmm. actually. I mean, you know, this is a story with a happy ending. It's very, very exciting to go to the Women's Center now and just see how it's being used by people in the community, people in the larger Boston area, that it's got a range of services. And as Cheryl said, the Women's Center was the mother of many important projects and organizations in Boston, just to give a few. The Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, Transition House, the Elizabeth Stone House, the Women's Community Cancer Project, Incest Resources, Lesbian Liberation. All of those groups and organizations either started at the Women's Center and then they very often blossomed and moved to other places, but it served as really a kind of incubator in a way of many of the uh, women's and service organizations, including City Life, La Vida Urbana, which is now a very important tenant rights and community activist organization that's based in Jamaica Plain in Boston. A number of the people who founded that organization met at 888 Memorial Drive. So it's really, in terms of its impact, not only uh, created the Women's Center, but also reverberated in many different ways in Boston. So I mentioned that the film was a long time in the making. Um, what was 18 years, it feels like? 16 years? What? 17 Close. years. 17 years. Uh, and now you've got it together and you're taking it around to various uh, film festivals. I'm wondering, what do you think when women who know nothing of this history see the film? Can If you can describe some of their responses, Susie. Well, they're amazed. They're amazed at what women have done, and they're frustrated that they didn't know this stuff, you know? So I feel like we're serving an important function in bringing this story out to a younger generation. And I also think it's interesting that what's known as the second wave of feminism from the era of Left on Pearl in the the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of those women didn't really know anything about the suffrage movement. Mm. So a lot of times these movements happen and then their history is, is just lost and then people have to reinvent the wheel a generation or two later. So we're trying to not fall into that pattern and fully document our history and pass it along. And now especially is a really important time for activism and a resurgence of feminist consciousness. Has there been any response from Harvard? Um, They're in the middle of doing a lot of excavation of their own history, certainly around slavery and some other issues, to want to, you know, note this in any way? There have been. uh, We've shown earlier versions of the film at Radcliffe at the Schlesinger Library. But no, I think that a recent, the recent symposium about slavery, Drew Fast, in fact, talked about the hidden history of Harvard. And this is another piece, I mean, of that hidden history. But no, we haven't had really a lot of interest so far. We'd certainly like to be able to make this story known to the larger Harvard community. Um, Cheryl, what has been your response when you watch people watch the film and come away with amazement? Well, the thing I'm I'm particularly hopeful about is in talking to younger people. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of young people who've seen this. We've shown the movie at MIT a number of times. Most recently, we showed it in White River Junction, and I spoke to a woman who was an intern currently at the Women's Center. And they're just 
it just empowers them to think about how the Women's Center came about and what they can do. And, and there's no limitation. If you, if you want to do it, you just have to move forward. You have to do it. I mean, you just have to put one foot in front of the other, and it really gives them some vision and some hope for the future that they can make an impact, that, that you know, the Women's Center came about because a group of women got together and they wanted to do something, and they did it. Well, they sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Left on Pearl, uh, history and really contemporary history, even as we speak. I thank you all for joining me in this conversation. Thanks so much thank for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks very much. Rochelle Ruthchild and Cheryl Stein are the executive producers of Left on Pearl, and Susie Revo is the director of Left on Pearl. You can find out more about the film at leftonpearl.org. We will also have a trailer on our website, news.wgbh.org slash UTR. And keep a lookout for upcoming screenings of the film, both in New York City and Cambridge. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineers are Doug Sugars and John Parker. Andrea Swaye is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.